Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Becca Levy is the leading authority on how beliefs about aging influence aging health. She's a professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and professor of psychology at Yale University. Dr. Levy has given testimony before the U.S. Senate on the adverse effects of ageism and has contributed to the U.S. Supreme Court beliefs to fight age discrimination. She serves as a scientific advisor to the World Health Organization's campaign to combat ageism. And today, she's here to chat about her best-selling book, Breaking the Age Code, how your beliefs about aging determine how long and well you live. Becca, welcome. Thank you. Great to join you. So I love the book. It is fascinating. And like so many books, it starts with a great personal story. So why this book? Yes, thanks. So yeah, I just felt like it was the right time to to write this book. So we know that from some of our studies that ageism is at an all-time high, about 68% of people in the country report experiencing or observing ageism. And at the same time, I mean, you know, and also I think it's gotten worse during the pandemic. So you probably observed this. So, for example, there was this meme that was really popular at the beginning of the pandemic calling COVID the boomer remover, which makes fun of the idea of older people dying from COVID, which is really terrible. So we know that there's a lot of ageism out there. At the same time, from my research, I have findings that I feel like can really address this and help this. So we know that age beliefs can have an impact on health from the research. And we also know that there's something we can do about it. So we actually can reverse some of the negative age stereotypes and strengthen the age, positive age stereotypes, which can bring health benefits. I love it. And and the title is Breaking the Age Code, but it was the subtitle that really caught my attention. How your beliefs about aging determine how long and well you live. So let's go there. How do our beliefs about aging determine how long and well you live? Because I, I absolutely believe that. That's a good question. So uh, th- so actually, so this all began, I, I really became interested in this topic when I was in graduate school and I had the opportunity to go to Japan and I had a fellowship that allowed me to try to observe why it is that Japan has the longest lifespan in the world. And the first thing I noticed when I arrived is how differently the older people are treated in, in the country. So as opposed to what I was used to seeing in Boston, where I was living at the time, where there was quite a bit of ageism. I noticed that older people were celebrated. So when I turned on the television, there were centenarians and super centenarians, people who are 110 and older who are celebrated on television like rock stars, and they have a national holiday that celebrates older people. So I became really interested in the question, is it possible that these cultural age beliefs, how we treat the oldest members of our culture, could those actually impact or lead to their longest lifespan. And so that sparked this whole series of studies that I undertook to try to understand if that could be the case when I got back to the United States. And indeed, there is quite a bit of evidence to suggest that's the case. So what else? I'm so curious, like, what are they doing so well in Japan in addition to celebrating age? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things and that they're doing. So, you know, one is the celebration. Another is that there's a lot of respect based on decades and 
centuries of, of cultural ideas about Confucianism and the role of older people in the society and the meaningful role they can contribute. There's also, I think, quite a bit of intergenerational contact and living, which we know can lead to more positive age beliefs, both for the older people and the younger people. So there's a lot of benefit from that intergenerational contact, which they do really well. And in terms of, you know, us Americans, what are the challenges we have here in terms of our belief system and age? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there there are challenges in that there are a lot of negative messages out there that are hard to avoid. So we know kids as young as age three have already taken in the age messages of their culture, and then those are reinforced over time. So that definitely is a challenge to have so many of those messages in advertising and social media in, you know, in everyday life that we come across. The good news is that challenge is something that we can do something about it. So, th so those beliefs are not set in stone. We know that we can shift the age beliefs from beliefs that are more based on this idea of, of decline in later life to an image of sort of thriving and looking at some of the strengths of, of later. Yeah. And segueing there, I think people, most people associate aging with some sort of decline, whether it's physical decline, cognitive decline, and not the case. And one of the things you talk about in the book is memory and memory can actually improve with age. So can you elaborate there? Cause we all have, you know, th th this is Hollywood at fault. This is culture. <laughs> like there's so many people at fault here. Elaborate. What do we have wrong when it comes to memory and aging? Yeah, sure. So that's a great question. So that in fact is maybe one of, if not the most common negative stereotype about aging that all cognition inevitably declines in all older people. But we know from the science that's just not true. We know that there's many different types of memories. So there's some like procedural memory, which would be something like remembering how to ride a bike so that we maintain in later life. And there's other types of memory and cognition that seem to actually get better in later life. So for example, the ability to solve conflict seems to get better in later life and the ability to think about thinking seems to get better in later life. So there are these qualities and aspects of cognition that actually get better. And we also know from, from my research that I talk about in the book is that some of the types of memory and cognition that people think inevitably declines, we've been able to show if we can improve positive age beliefs that, that actually can improve those types of memory as well. So there's a lot of flexibility that exists in there. And then lastly, I had a chance in the book to talk to some examples of older people who accomplish these wonderful memory tasks that really show vividly how we can really do wonderful things with our cognition in later life. So cognition is definitely high on the list in terms of misconceptions. What are some other misconceptions out there around aging? Yeah. So in, in the book, that was actually something I really enjoyed doing was looking at some of the most common negative messages, negative beliefs about aging, and then looking to see what the science is. And in most cases, those negative messages are not only wrong, but there is some strength that older people have that shows that's actually not only wrong, but there's reasons to believe that, that there, we can think of sort of positive messages to counter them. And so, for example, another one would be that older people don't contribute to society. So I think that's something that comes up in different types of messaging. But we also, but the research shows that actually uh, generativity or the motivation to contribute to society and help other people actually increases in later life and selfish motivations tend to 
decline. There's studies that show that older people are the most likely to recycle. They are the most likely to give um, to different nonprofits or foundations. There, many of them have take on jobs and volunteer positions that allow them to contribute to the workplace or contribute to society in different ways. So there's a lot of evidence that there are many older people who have, you know, are actually making these really great contributions. I love that. And something else, I think another important message of the book, which resonated with me, is having a belief system that's based in positive beliefs rather than negative beliefs. And you go as far as you reference a study on longevity where those with positive beliefs live seven and a half years longer than those with negative beliefs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So after, after I got back from Japan, I was really interested in how to actually show with science, whether that's actually the case that these age beliefs that exist in the culture can actually impact our lifespan or longevity. And I wasn't sure how to study it at first. I was searching for all different kinds of methods. And because you can't really randomly assign people and then look to see right away whether they die or not, you really have to follow people over a long period of time to, to see the impact of on lifespan. So fortunately, I found a data set in, from Oxford, Ohio, and a sociologist named Robert Ashley had asked everybody in the town who was 50 and older to talk about a number of ideas. But one of them happened to be, how do you think about aging? And so he actually measured their age beliefs in the 1970s. And then I came along and found this data set and said, OK, if only I could find a way to look at their lifespan. And I searched around to try to see how to do that. And then I came across a data set called the National De Death Index, which keeps track of how when everybody dies in the country, I didn't know before that that such a thing existed. But then when I found out about that, I was able to match the beliefs that were expressed in this town of Oxford, Ohio, to how long they lived. And exactly what you said, we found that those who had taken in more positive age beliefs had a median survival that was seven and a half years longer than those who started the study and had taken more negative age beliefs. So it was, yeah, quite a big difference between the groups. It's amazing. I'm curious. Is there a real world example you could provide from that study of what up, what would constitute a positive belief versus a negative belief? Yeah. So in different studies, I measure age beliefs in different ways. So one thing that I often do in studies is I just ask people, when you think an older person, what are the first five words or phrases that come to mind? And so people generate images. And that's actually something I do with my own students. I, I teach um, masters of public health students. And we start the semester by just exploring our own beliefs. And um, so that that is one way. And, and But another way is a number of studies have surveys that ask people about their age beliefs. So for example, in the longevity study, the, the way that they assessed it was a questionnaire that included a number of items such as older people. So they would say whether they agree or disagree that older people contribute to society. So if somebody who said Yes, they would be marked as having a slightly higher belief, positive, more positive belief about aging. If somebody says, no, they don't contribute to society at all, they would be marked as having a lower or more negative belief about aging. I'm curious, are men and women different at all here? Yeah, that's a great question. And we do know that there are sort of these intersectionalities of beliefs. So there, there are, there's a combination of ageism and sexism that we know ex exists. But in our studies, we actually haven't found uh, large sex differences. We actually find that men and women seem to be equally impacted by taking in either positive age beliefs or negative age beliefs. But I, I think there are, are differences in some of the, the beliefs that are out there. I think maybe the reason we don't see the differences in our studies is 
are maybe we're not we don't have measures that are subtle enough to pick up some of those gender differences. And I'm curious, do you have a view on the rise of plastic surgery and the role it plays here? Well, so I think that we know that you know, the anti-aging industry is a huge multi-billion dollar industry in the country. And and I think part of the way that they get people to buy their products, and which can include different types of cosmetic surgery that get rid of uh, signs of aging. I think part of the way they get people to become consumers is by raising fear about aging or have advertisements that that promote negative beliefs about aging. So I think that's something that's really important to look at. You know, on the other hand, though, I think people can make their own choices about what makes them feel good. And, you know, so I think we're kind of, it, it's a balance of what what an individual wants to do. They have a right to, to choose whatever builds, makes them feel comfortable. But also I think the industry shouldn't pressure people, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't, yeah. hundred percent agreed. And I think it's so nuanced and I'm thinking about it a couple of different ways. One is, you know, for example, I'm 47, I'm starting to get more gray hairs. I look at that as a sign of aging and I'm, you know, I'm still here. I'm excited. You think about it, like I'm not dead, I'm living, I'm, I'm showing some aging. On the other hand, if my hair was starting to felt, fall out, maybe I'd feel a little bit differently about that. And so on one hand, you know, the wrinkles, the, the graying, the white, like it, it is a sign you're aging. On the other hand, if you don't feel good about it and there's something, you know, if there's a procedure or a pill or whatever it might be, that's going to make you feel better about your appearance and then help, you know, you know, shift you from a negative belief about aging to a positive belief about aging, that's really powerful too. And so it's a, it's a tough, I think to your point, I think it's an individual decision and everything we know about how mindset influences our ability to, you know, achieve that beautiful, vibrant life, you know, whether that's age 80 or 90 or hundred or whatever that looks like that that's, it's interesting. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, right. So, so at the end of the day, I don't think people should feel pressured to, or feel ashamed about getting older, but at the same time, it seems like the, it's really important to give people opportunities to make decisions about what makes them feel good, I think as well. And so on the subject of longevity, there's, you know, uh, longevity, and then there's extreme longevity call like those, you know, hundred plus of the people we read about in the news. What can we learn from those people, those areas of the world where they're experiencing extreme longevity? Yeah, so that, that's a, a really good question and something that's really interesting. So so in the book, we have a chapter on longevity, and I, I know you've had some great episodes on longevity. So, so there's a lot of really interesting information that's out there. So in the book for our longevity chapter, one of the things that was fun to do was I worked with a Japanese college student who, so I don't speak Japanese, but she's fluent. So we explored supercentenarians was one of the things that was really interesting to look at. So we had a chance to interview some supercentenarians, people who are 110 and older. So th these are people who really show the extreme longevity. And I think they're more in Japan than anywhere else. And in fact, I think the, I believe the longest living woman 
Kanae, I think her name is Kanae Tanaka, I believe. She's still in Japan. She's living in Japan. And I think one of the things that I was really interested in was trying to understand how they think about aging and something that was lovely to observe in the longest living woman's ideas about aging is she was interviewed recently and she said she felt like she was in the best time of her life, which was such a nice idea because she's like, she's lived through so much, you know, like so many different historical periods and different wonderful things that have happened. And she felt like, yeah, her, where she is now is the best time that she's been alive, which, so I think, yeah, so I think there's this something that I have observed. And, and then talking to in doing that research, we talked to a number of people who are tracking longevity in Japan. So they have different ways to actually confirm these extreme longevity examples that they're actually that as long as living as long as they, they say that they have lived. And one of the things that I found in looking at the interviewers and then the people that they've interviewed is that positive beliefs about aging was a theme that kept in coming up. It's so powerful. And, it, you know, I I love testing. I've done the genetic tests. I do an insane amount of blood testing a couple times a year in, in, in the hope of longevity or health span. Cause I also think it's quality of life. It's not just getting to a number, it's your quality of life. And so with that said, you know, a lot of people have done genetic testing and there's a gene that I th think is fairly out there, so to speak. There are a lot of gene variants, but the APOE, the, the dreaded APOE which is linked to Alzheimer's and dementia. You have some fascinating takeaways when you studied those with and without that gene and their belief system. Yes, I agree. So it is a really interesting genetic marker, so APOE gene. And so in, in a, a recent study, I was really interested in looking at the people that are born with this risky gene for developing dementia and Alzheimer's disease, which is the APOE4 variant. And so what we found in that study was looking at this high-risk genetic group, those who had been born with this um, APOE4, if they develop more positive age beliefs, they also had this significant reduction in experiencing dementia as they got older. And in fact, it was a 40% reduction in the risk. And the risk went down in that group. As So if somebody has the, the risky gene and they develop the positive age beliefs, their risk of developing dementia is as low as somebody who is not born with this risky gene. So I thought that was, yeah, a great finding. Wow. That is, that's a wow finding. Yes. Yes. So it's uh, that's, and I think there's a lot of hope in that, that we can really impact our risks of different illnesses. And those without the gene who yes. had negative beliefs, it was as, as if they had the gene. Right. So we see the advantage of positive age beliefs, both in those who have been born with the risky gene and then also those who are not. So, right. And so the disadvantage of the negative age beliefs, we also see in both groups. To, to me, that's astonishing. And I think in the age of so much testing at our fingertips. I think it's really being self-aware of how you handle information and process it. If you tend to run a little negative, maybe don't get the test. If you run positive, get every test. Right. <laughs> and, and so with that said, you know, we have a, a range of listeners, you know, those in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and beyond. What should we be thinking of? in terms of aging well, like 
buy, is it different if I'm in my twenties versus my fifties? Like, how do you think about each decade and the things we should kind of be focused on? Because in some ways I, I view mindset almost as a muscle and like some of the practices you talk about a muscle that you have to exercise and it's very hard to like turn on all of a sudden at 55 or whatever the age might be. So how, how do you think about that by, by decade, which we'd be focusing on? Yeah. So that's a good question. So we know as young as, you know, first decade, as young as age three, we start to take in the age release of our culture. And then those are reinforced over time. We also know that within cultures, regardless of age, the age beliefs actually seem to be pretty similar because we're taking in the same messages from our, our society. And we know that the age beliefs that are taken in at a young age can impact future health. So we have one study that we found that individuals who were as young as 18 or 20, when we looked at their beliefs about aging that they'd taken in and then followed them when they turned 60, we found that those who started with more well, could say it either direction, but say more positive age beliefs were half as likely to have a cardiovascular event when they turned 60. So we know that these age beliefs are important throughout the lifespan. We know that we can take them in at any age. And we also know that we can shift them at any age. So in, in the practices that I suggest in the book are things that you know, children can do, adolescents can do, young adults can do, older adults can do, very older <laughs> adults can do. So we've seen shifts in, in all of those age groups. I should mention though that we don't actually see the health effects until people start to identify as older. So for the younger people, it's not their current health that's necessarily impacted, but it's their future health that is probably impacted. So there's an advantage to becoming allies to try to reduce ageism and try to think about how to shift age beliefs at a young age as well. So in terms of those practices, what are your top few that anyone, regardless of age, should incorporate? So, yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, in the book, I present about 14 evidence-based practices that people can start right away. And I would say some of the most powerful, just to, you know, give you yeah. an example, are those that shift our awareness. And that could be awareness of our own age beliefs. And it also could be awareness of age beliefs that are around us that we encounter. And we know that the age beliefs can operate without awareness. So, they can operate implicitly. So to increase awareness, one, one method that I have found is particularly helpful is something called age belief journaling. And what that is, is for one week, I suggest that we write down, that you write down any um, message about aging that you encounter. So it could be, you know, in a, um, in a television show, uh, it could be your you know favorite movie you're streaming on Netflix. It could be in social media. It could be overhearing a conversation in a coffee shop. Anything that has to do with a belief about aging or a portrayal of aging, write it down and then write down whether it's a positive portrayal or a negative portrayal. And if it's a negative portrayal, take another moment and think, is there a positive portrayal that could have been presented? So if you watch a television show and it's got this really nasty principal, older man, could there have been a different way to present him? So taking that moment to question some of the negative portrayals and then Lastly, something that's important to do is also mark down when there's an absence of older people. So if you watch a show and everybody's under the age of 25, you know, write down, there wasn't another person on the show at all, because we know the absence of portrayal of people can also lead to marginalization of that group. And so, so I think that I've found that's one method that we can easily 
do in a short amount of time. And it can really increase our awareness of these messages. Interesting. So, so think about aging, I think about belief system, got to think about stress, our ability to handle stress. And so can you talk a little bit about how our age beliefs impact our direct ability to handle stress? Cause stress doesn't go away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good question. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is what's, is the mechanism that leads to some of the findings that we've talked about. So what, how is it that these cultural beliefs can actually impact our physiology, our longevity? And as you talk about stress is a key idea that a key finding that is part of the mechanism. So I know from some of our findings that people who have more negative age beliefs tend to have elevated response to stressors. And we've seen that in a number of different ways with blood pressure increasing and heart rate increasing and cortisol levels over time. On the other hand, we have found that people who hold more positive age beliefs, it actually can act as a buffer. So we found in a number of studies that the positive age beliefs actually seem to act as a resource and can lower stress responses. Interesting. So of all the research you've conducted or read, what was the most surprising to you? I think we definitely the, well, the longevity finding kind of really was surprising to me just because the degree to which it made a difference, I was not expecting. You know, I, I thought that maybe we'd see some kind of a little bit of an association, but the degree to which it seems to actually have an impact and that finding of age beliefs leading to improve uh, more positive age beliefs being associated with a, a longer and healthier lifespan has been replicated in about 10 different countries. So it's something that's happening here, but also in different parts of the world. So you mentioned earlier that those who are older are more likely to, you know, recycle, volunteer. To me, that screams purpose. What role do you think purpose plays in longevity? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, when we looked, when we've looked at how it is that age beliefs can impact lifespan and longevity, we talked about stress. So the stress is probably part of the mechanism, but I think purpose, as you mentioned, is certainly part of the process as well. So we know that from a number of studies that people who find more purpose in later life, ha you know, have a longer lifespan, and we know that these positive age beliefs can have an impact on increasing a sense of purpose. So, so it does seem like purpose is, is really important. And I, you know, just to be clear, I mean, can be, purpose can be so many different things to different people. So it's not like there's one way that people find purpose. I think it's a very individual decision of what one feels kind of resonates with what, what enjoys and what, you know, draws on one's individual strengths. So it could be anything from like writing poetry to joining an activist group to, you know, coming up with a new form of exercise. So, yeah. So there's a lot of different ways that one can add that to one's life. Well, I also tend to, you know, you mentioned Japan. I, I also think of multi-generational living and feeling needed versus being, you know, sent off in the pasture. And I think of the, the need for connection, IRL connection, and, you know, to your point, purpose means many different things, but the, this idea of, I think feeling, feeling needed, like you have a role for many is a, a reason to stay alive and do all the things, you know, are good for your own personal health. 
versus, you know, no one really needs me. What am I doing here anymore? Exactly. Yes. I th- and I think you're right. I think that idea of being generative to be feel needed, feel like one's making a contribution is, is, a, is a strength that kind of goes up in later life, but it's also something that we can work on to find where we want to be, what want to be generative. And, and on that note, something that came up on a recent podcast I did with Arthur Brooks on a similar subject, those who experienced fame notoriety have a much harder time aging when that fame and notoriety and responsibility, whether it's a, an, you know, an actor or a professional athlete or a high powered CEO have a much more difficult time aging, which I found to be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. And so I'm curious, what have you changed personally after doing all the research and writing the book, what are the things where you said, all right, I need to make my own personal changes here. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm always looking for, for new ways to, to find meaning. So something actually I I really enjoy that I is ballet classes or dance classes. So that's something I've been, um, been, and there's some great studios nearby. So that's something that I love to do. And it's nice because it's also can be very intergenerational and kind of honors people's abilities and, you know, and and skills and where they're coming from. So yeah, that's something that I really enjoy. And in closing, look, we've got a lot of work to do here in terms of ageism and and how we view aging here in the U S you know, what is your hope with this book? Yes. So my hope is that we become a more age just society. And I think we're on a a tipping point or almost at a tipping point of of having enough people that are angry about the ageism that exists in our country to really bring about you know a social movement and as we were talking about earlier ideally it would be across the generations there would be younger allies and you know older activists who would come together and really bring about social change I, you know so i think we know that there are things we can do on an individual level which are really important and those are some of the things that we that i present in the book but the other piece of that is, wouldn't it be great if we had a society where you didn't need to have tools that made you aware of the negative age messages? Like, what if they just were reduced? And and for that, I think we also need to think about, you know, a blueprint that will allow us to bring about age liberation in a more age-just society. Amen. Becca, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much.